Hi, I'm Charles Christoph Carter. And I'm his mom, Ellen Carter. We'd like to welcome you to this week's episode of Serial Dreadfuls, your place to find original content covering everything from dark historical fiction to science fiction, horror, adventure, and the supernatural. If you like the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcast provider of choice. Thank you. In our last episode, on their way to go shopping, Laura unexpectedly stopped at the Johnson farm. When she did, Anne caught sight of Henry Muntz. Thinking he was in trouble, Anne followed him into the old farmhouse. Determined to return Henry to the safety of the rectory in town, Anne soon realized that Henry was terrified and running from something or someone. It wasn't until both women forced Henry into Laura's van that Anne too felt but could not see the reason for Henry's terror. Unable to explain both her and Henry's seemingly irrational fear, Anne lied and told Laura that she had heard someone in the house and that they were all in danger, prompting Laura to tear out of the driveway and speed toward town. And now, without further ado, the next episode of Yard Work, written by Charles and Ellen Carter, narrated by Ellen Carter. Listener discretion is advised. Joe stood on the front porch of the Taylor cottage. It was still early. He wasn't sure if Jared would be up. He gave three sharp knocks on the door and waited. The knocks were the only sounds to echo through the morning air. The eerie silence that surrounded Joe was a reminder that he bore the burden of finding out who had pulled the Dalton child from the world of the living with all of its promises of a career, love, marriage, and children and into the exclusive, permanent, gated community that stood silent on a hill that overlooked the Taylor Cottage. Very shortly, that closed community would accept one more into its silent world. Joe was about to knock again when the door opened. There you are, Joe said with a forced cheerfulness. Are you going to invite me in, or shall we converse on the porch? Jared grumbled something unintelligible, let his right hand slip from the doorknob, and walked slowly, like a sleepwalker, to the middle of the room. Joe stepped inside and closed the door against the frigid air. As Jared stood there like a lost soul, his pajamas twisted, his back to his early morning visitor, he scratched his unkempt head. Jared turned to face him, his eyes still puffy with sleep, his left arm hanging, the dead appendage no more useful to him than a cure to a dead man. Joe fought to hide his feeling of surprise, trying to keep it from showing on his face and in his eyes. He had known Jared as strong, capable of any task he decided to take on. But seeing the full extent of Jared's injury saddened him. Despite what Jared had told him, naively he had expected Jared to have some use of his left arm. 
For the first time, Joe could truly understand Jared's anguish and fear. He realized how vulnerable the injury had made his friend. Maybe this wasn't such a good idea, but he couldn't turn back. Jared would suspect something. He decided to push ahead. To what do I owe this very early morning visit? Jared asked with a yawn. How do you like the place? Joe asked, initially sidestepping Jared's question. Joe, you're sick. You wake me up at the break of dawn to ask me how I like the place? First of all, I have concerns about my neighbors up on that hill. I have visions of opening the door one night to one of their ghostly welcoming committees. And then there's that weird shadow that appears as soon as the sun starts to set. I have never slept in a house that has the shadow of a crucifix falling across it. This place is like something out of an old Bela Lugosi movie. Joe laughed. You know, she's thinking about selling it. I think I could get you a good price if you're interested. Joe saw the stunned look on Jared's face and then the small smile that crept across it. I think I'm going to need a little time to think about that one, Joe. I see the house is winterized. It's nice and warm, Joe said. Jared nodded in agreement. Now, tell me why you're really here. Do you remember our conversation at the restaurant when you offered to help me with this case? Was that after my fourth beer? Jared asked with a smile. I'm not sure how many you had had when you made that offer. Jared laughed. I vaguely remember the conversation. Why? Well, I'm taking you up on it. Jared straightened up. His eyes became more alert. When? Now. What other reason would I have for rousting you out of a nice cozy bed at the break of dawn? Joe asked with a laugh. Shit, Joe, I'm on vacation. I haven't even showered or shaved. Well, how long do you think it would take you to do that? At least half an hour. Okay, you have ten minutes. I'll make us some coffee while I wait. You do have coffee, don't you? (laughs) That's about all I have. It's in the cabinet on the left, top shelf, Jared said as he started up the stairs. The overcast November day waited for them with mist still hanging in wispy snatches on the round and worn mountains. It was cold the kind of cold that was serious and steady, leaving no illusion of what must eventually follow. It was an ominous prelude to the full throes of winter. The last of the foliage had been stripped from many of the deciduous trees, their naked branches extending skyward like quills on a porcupine through the brooding fir trees that held fast, their green needles softening the features of the surrounding mountains. What little light the slate-gray sky held was further diminished by the patchwork of tall firs that mingled among their naked counterparts, leaving the forest at best a dimly lit world, filled with the haunting sighs of the wind and far-off echoes of sounds not quite perceptible. As they came out of the woods, Jared, Joe, and six of his deputies gathered on a logging road that abutted Hard Scrabble Road, a quarter mile from the Johnson farmhouse. All of them had grown up in the area and were more than capable woodsmen and hunters, all but one, Jared. The men left the logging road and reached Hard Scrabble. They were about to cross Hard Scrabble Road and head up the access road to Mirror Lake when they heard the roar of an engine and then saw a dark burgundy minivan approaching them at a high rate of speed, the driver barely in control. 
Joe's six deputies jumped forward, seeking the relative safety of a ditch. Joe and Jared were in the midst of following when the minivan swerved in a wide arc to avoid them, gravel flying as the driver of the vehicle brought it to a stop. The whole incident happened so fast that Joe and Jared hadn't had time to jump out of harm's way. The front doors of the minivan flew open, and Anne and Laura climbed out. The two women ran towards them. Joe's mouth was dry. He swallowed hard. Adrenaline was rushing through his body. As Laura reached him, he grabbed her by her shoulders, stopping her with a shake as he croaked, Didn't you see us? You could have killed us! He could feel her body trembling in his grasp as he stared intently into her deep brown eyes, searching for an answer. It was hard to put behind him the still-present sense of gut-wrenching fear that a speeding two-ton vehicle can inspire as it narrowly misses your all-too-human body. Both the fear and anger had blinded him momentarily to the terror in Laura's eyes. Those feelings were quickly replaced with concern. He released his firm grip on Laura's shoulders. He suddenly understood that something was wrong. He looked at Anne. She was standing slightly behind and to the side of Laura, tears running down her face. I'm sorry, Joe. I didn't see you. I was trying to get away, Laura said in a choked voice. The deputies who had jumped into the ditch had returned to the road and were standing around the two women. What are you talking about, Laura? Who are you trying to get away from? Before Laura could answer, Anne began to explain. Laura and I came out for a drive. As we approached the Johnson farm, I saw Henry dash inside. He seemed to be running from someone. I thought something was wrong. I went in to see if I could help, and I found him crouched in a corner. I could tell he was afraid. Henry, he's supposed to be at Revan Hollander's, Joe said, looking over Anne's shoulder at the middle-aged man's distraught face pressed against the window, his frightened eyes peering out of Laura's minivan. Anne told me that she heard someone else in the house, Joe. Did you see anyone? Joe asked Anne. Anne shook her head no. But she heard him, Laura replied breathlessly. How long ago did this happen? Joe asked. Just a few minutes ago. He may still be around there, Laura said, the fear still evident in her voice. Henry's really frightened, Anne interjected. Joe realized that Henry wasn't the only one who was frightened. Joe led Anne and Laura back to the van waited for them to climb in. He motioned for Anne to roll down her window. Anne, I want you to take Henry back over to Revan Hollander's and tell him I said to keep him there, even if he has to sit on him. I don't want him coming back out here. Joe hit the roof of the van twice. Now get going, Laura, and watch the speed. I want to make sure you make it in one piece. Joe waited until the minivan had disappeared around a curve in the road. Then he glanced at Jared. They worked together so closely in the past and knew each other so well that words were unnecessary. Jared nodded almost imperceptibly. Joe turned to his deputies and said, We're going to go take a look at that farmhouse. They crossed Hardscrabble Road, forded the ditch, and stepped onto rich farmland that had become overgrown with wild mustard, thistles, waist-high cowgrass, and decaying goldenrod. The depth of the matted grass spoke volumes about the two decades the Johnson Field had lain fallow. They crossed the tract of land looking closely for signs of disturbance in the virginal field. They reached the Johnson house and Joe had them break into two-man teams. One team searched the barn while the other two-man teams searched the outbuildings. 
Joe and Jared checked the house. Within 20 minutes, they all gathered at the back of the Johnson barn. Their searches had proven fruitless. Maynard Nash stood to one side of Joe, turning and scanning the horizon. Which way, Sheriff? Maynard asked. We're going to work our way up to the far ridge, Joe replied. I heard the weather report. It's going to get colder tonight. Greg Vivian is going to have to look for a place to spend the night. There are some hunting camps on the far side of the ridge in Baldwin's Hollow. He might try and hold up in one of them. We'll take a look. We might get lucky. A raw, bitter wind blew down off the mountain, whipped across the lowland field, and buffeted the men as they made their way toward the far tree line. Briars, stinging nettles, sawgrass, and stunted saplings all conspired to slow their pace as they pushed through the living barrier until they entered the forest where moss-covered fallen logs lay like old soldiers decaying in the cold, overcast November light. The raw wind gusted through the crooked tree branches, causing the trees to moan, sigh, and creak before the wind moved on like a restless wanderer through the forest. The men angled into the woods without looking back, climbing the steep terrain, the thick carpet of pine and hemlock needles muffling the sound of their footfalls. After nearly half a mile of working their way up the mountain, they reached a plateau and gained easier footing. They hadn't gone far when Joe saw faded axe hash marks on two large trees, defining part of the boundary of an old woodlot. Just beyond that, he saw bright yellow X's encircled by large yellow O's on a number of large trees. The marks were fresh. Thin streams of wet yellow paint ran haphazardly from the markings down the rough tree trunks. A shot rang out. The report came from Joe's left. Who fired that shot? Everyone hold your fire. There's a logger working up here, Joe yelled. There was no response. Just the muffled sound of men running through pine needles, the random snapping sound of dead saplings and branches being broken as they moved in the direction of the gunshot. Shit, Joe swore as he too ran toward the sound. Jared followed. When Joe reached the men, he saw all but one man standing together in a group. The men were looking in the direction Bill Bannister's rifle was pointing. Bill was poised for a second shot. Joe followed Bill's line of sight, but saw nothing. Bill, what are you shooting at? Bill lowered his rifle and turned to Joe. I saw him, Joe. I saw him. I told you not to fire. I didn't want anyone getting hurt. But I saw him, Joe. Who did you see? The women were right. He's up here. I've never seen anyone move like that, Bannister said, staring off at a stand of trees in the distance. Who did you see? Joe asked again, trying to get Bill's attention. Don't shoot! Don't shoot! It's me! A man's voice called from the direction in which Bannister had just fired. A tall, lean-muscled man, easily standing six feet six inches, slowly emerged from the bushes with his hands in the air. He was dressed in a camouflage jacket and dark green heavy wool pants. Bright red unruly hair stuck out from under his hat. His face was covered in red freckles and was edged with fear. His blue eyes darted back and forth from Joe and Bill to the group of men standing to one side of them. What the hell's going on? Dudley Meacham said as he walked toward them. As he lowered his hands, he turned to Joe and reiterated his question. Sheriff, what's going on? Joe turned to Bannister and asked in a low voice, 
Is this who you saw? Is this who you shot at? Bill Bannister's attention was still trained on the woods as he answered, No, I wasn't shooting at Meacham. There was someone else just beyond where he was working, someone moving among those trees over there, Bannister said, pointing to a stand of trees about 50 yards beyond where Dudley Meacham had emerged. Joe looked in the direction Bannister had indicated. His eyes searched the stand itself and then either side of it. There was nothing. Joe turned back to Bannister with a hard stare. He didn't say anything. Bannister quickly became edgy and defensive. I swear to you, Joe, there was someone there. I'm not making it up. I wasn't shooting at Meacham. I told you not to fire. Why did you fire, Bill? Joe said, purposefully keeping his voice low. Ann and Laura were right. He's up here. You saw Vivian? Yes, I've never seen anyone move that fast before. Are you saying you saw his face? No, but I know it was Vivian, Bannister replied. His eyes narrowed. I know what you're thinking, Sheriff. I'm not just trying to cover my ass. I wasn't shooting at Meacham. You have to look at it from where I stand, Bill. You fired at someone. You say it was Vivian, but hunting season starts soon. It could have been Vivian, or it could have been a hunter scouting out a location. I don't think you're sure who you really shot at. I specifically asked everyone not to fire their weapons. I know. You're right, Sheriff. I shot without thinking, but no, Bill, I don't want any of your excuses. I want Greg Vivian, and I want him alive. Do you understand? Now, if you think you're not capable of keeping your finger off that trigger, you tell me now, and you can go back to the station house. Bill Bannister looked away and shook his head like a child who'd just been severely reprimanded. I understand. Good. I don't want any more mistakes, Joe said in a low, harsh whisper. Joe turned his attention to Dudley. What are you doing up here, Dudley? I've been contracted to do some select cutting. I've been marking trees since early this morning. Joe twisted his mouth to one side. Have you heard or seen anyone this morning while you were working? No, I can't say as I've seen anyone, but I heard something about an hour ago. Sounded like an animal walking through the leaves, a deer maybe. Which way did you come up? From Baldwin's Hollow. Did you see any signs of anyone using any of those cabins? No. What's this all about, Sheriff? Who are you looking for? Dudley asked, his face brightening as soon as he posed the questions. You're looking for Judith Dalton's killer, aren't you? You're thinking he's out here in these woods. Is that it, Sheriff? Joe ignored Dudley's questions. How much longer do you think you're going to be up here? I don't know, Sheriff. I've got 10 or 15 more acres I've got to mark. Joe looked up at the overcast sky through the web of branches. It doesn't look like you'll have enough light left to finish 10 or 15 acres. Do me a favor and don't work up here for the next couple of days. While I wanted to finish this part of the job as soon as possible, I promised Gay I'd take her away for a few days. So do it when you get back. Dudley pushed his mouth to one side and scratched his head. I guess I could do that, Sheriff, but I'm letting you know now that when I get back, I'm coming up here to finish the job. Fair enough, Dudley, Joe said, clapping him on the back. We're going to go down the other side of the ridge and take a look at those hunting cabins in Baldwin's Hollow. Do you mind if I walk with you as far as that? My truck is only half a mile further on. We'll be glad for the company. They made their way down the steep tree-covered embankment, weaving their way through stands of birch and pine. 
Thirty yards below, Joe could see four hunting cabins nestled in Baldwin's Hollow. He and his men moved down the remainder of the slope and walked across the flat land of the hollow toward the cabins. The occasional chatter that had been present since the search began suddenly faded. A silence fell over the men, each one left to his thoughts. There was a tension that hadn't existed before. They broke up into groups and searched the three nearest cabins first. Joe and Jared took the third cabin. Joe placed his hand on the rusted doorknob, turned it, and pushed the door. It swung slowly open, its hinges creaking with complaint. He bent his head because of the low doorway and stepped cautiously inside. There was a damp, musty smell to the sparsely furnished single room. Overturned beer bottles lay scattered across a wooden table that stood in the center of the floor. A large lump of melted candle wax sat in the middle of the table. An old lantern sat beside it. Above it, a filthy fly strip fluttered, almost seeming to come to life with a sudden movement of air. More empty beer bottles were scattered across the floor and strung the length of an old faded sofa bed that stood beneath the only window. The sofa's fabric had been nibbled by field mice and bore jagged holes where the mice had burrowed down into the batting to make nests. Someone had left an empty liquor bottle sitting on the battered three-drawer dresser that stood against the far wall. Elaborate cobwebs anchored in the corners of the place and gathered over God knew how many seasons suddenly seemed to palpitate, stirred to life by the outside air drifting in through the open door. There were no signs of recent occupation. Joe nodded to Jared and they stepped back out into the cold wind. The search of the first three cabins had yielded nothing. Joe started walking in the direction of the fourth cabin. The deputies spread out on either side of him. They saw a figure dressed in a camouflage suit made of hundreds of loose strips of fabric bolt out of the fourth cabin and zigzag across what was left of the flat open land of the hollow and into the tree line beyond. Bannister fired at the figure, hitting a solitary cedar at the edge of the hollow. Bill, hold your fire, damn it, Joe yelled. They gave chase, following the figure, angling into the woods, the forest floor covered with pine and hemlock needles and damp leaves, making the footing soft and slippery. Most of the area was covered with mature trees, scrub pine and saplings fighting for their place in the sun. Joe heard a man scream, and a moment later, Maynard Nash called out, Dennis Leister's hurt, Sheriff. He's caught his leg in a trap. Everybody freeze, Joe yelled. Just ahead, perhaps 60 yards away, Joe caught a glimpse of the figure, the shaggy camouflage he wore making it difficult to pick him out from the surrounding vegetation. Joe saw the figure turn and look back in his direction. Although Joe could not make out his features beneath the cowl that the figure wore, he could imagine the smile creeping across the figure's face, almost see those piercing blue eyes mocking him. In his gut, Joe knew that the man in camouflage was Vivian. Joe heard another man's high-pitched scream come from somewhere behind him. A few seconds later, one of the men in the party called out, Both Norm's legs have been pierced by sharpened sticks! Norm had sprung a well-set trap. God damn it! I told everyone to freeze, Joe shouted. Joe raised his rifle to his shoulder, looked through the scope, but before he could fix the man in his crosshairs, the figure quickly disappeared into a stand of scrub pine.
Joe realized that the man they were pursuing had deliberately led them into a place he had peppered with traps that he had made from young saplings. Who knew what else awaited them if they continued to pursue him? They were caught in their perpetrator's version of a minefield. The only way they were going to get out of this without anyone else getting hurt was to backtrack. And now, a preview of our next episode. After having been chewed out by Joe twice for disobeying Joe's direct orders not to fire his weapon, Bill Bannister knows he stands to lose his job as a town deputy. Angry with Joe and fearful of losing his position, what will Bill do to turn the tables on the sheriff? Who will he turn to, and what lies will he tell to keep his job? Please consider joining our Patreon site and becoming a Dreadnought. For only $3 a month, our Dreadnoughts get early access to free episodes, exclusive periodic commentary by the authors of the books and the creators of the podcast, exclusive access to episodes of the second half of each book as those episodes are released, and access to the entire back catalog of episodes as our podcast goes forward. Click the link in the show description now to become a dreadnought and aid in the conversion of the uninitiated masses.